Hello, and welcome to the first podcast for the so far hot and sultry month of June 2023 of the BV Magazine, your slice of true Dorset life in all its variety. I'm Jenny Devitt. And it's hello from me, Terry Bennett. In this episode, we'll have some of the letters you sent to the Blackmore Vale magazine online. Regular contributor Roger Guttridge tells me about the connection between the eminent 17th century scientist and chemist Robert Boyle and the town of Stalbridge. We'll have the first in a series of interviews with local antique dealers who've recently appeared on national television. Chris Loder, MP for West Dorset, gives feedback from a recent Farm to Fork summit meeting held at Number 10 Downing Street, as well as reflecting on the forthcoming local council by-election in Sherborne. We'll hear from Mike Chapman of the North Dorset Lib Dems on credibility, profit, service and discontent. Pat Osborne from North Dorset Labour elaborates on the party's plans to introduce compulsory purchase orders, which could be used by local councils to acquire land at lower prices. And finally, Ken Huggins of the North Dorset Green Party says that it's time to wake up and see the flood. First, though, let's hear from our editor, Laura Hitchcock. As most of you probably remember, we finally headed to Mayfair last month for the Swish Awards Do, as a tiny team just to be shortlisted for Regional Publication of the Year to be considered among the top three regional titles in the country. It was such an honour. On the night we didn't win, but we did receive a highly commended accolade, one of only four on the night, beyond anything we expected. After a seemingly unending spring of chilly greyness, summer seemed to rush at us in May. The blackthorn was lush, but the hawthorn was positively frothing, wasn't it? I've never seen the hedgerow so thick with white. It was utterly glorious. The buttercups and cow parsley too. Dorset flashed its prettiest ankle at us and I was happily wooed. Although some were less happy about a council mow of said cow parsley, there are some disgruntled readers on the letters page this month. If you watch Spring Watch, then you might be feeling inspired to go and explore the area of outstanding natural beauty near Swanage. In a weird twist, our own best walk this month was from Studland. There are very few public footpaths across the RSPB Arn Reserve itself, for obvious reason, but the wider area's stunning heathland is crisscrossed by them. If you've never explored it, then now is the perfect time. We did a long walk, 13 miles, but it's really adaptable, really easy to cut the route to your own length. It's also very flat. We thoroughly recommend going. It's simply beautiful. And we go now before the summer hordes really arrive. Our own route's on page 50 in the magazine if you want to look at it. Lastly, and a quick double answer to current FAQs in my inbox, Mochi, our son's fifth floor window diving cat, is doing amazingly. Her cast is finally off. She's still limping, but getting around beautifully. And no, I have not gone mug shopping yet. But I am thrilled by the number of people who got in touch to share that they also have a specific mug for every time of day, type of drink, mood they're feeling. It's the only way. Lastly, I had a kickboxing grading last week. I was feeling the fear beforehand. I love the sport and I work hard at progressing. I only started it to spite my teenagers. No, really, I did. And although I guarantee my body is the exact opposite of what you picture when you think kickboxer, it always brings me joy. Even if my creaking bones and weeping joints keep pretending I am far too old for this nonsense. Letters to the editor. I would like to put in your magazine a big heartfelt thank you. My brother collapsed in Gillingham surgery Monday the 22nd. Help was there immediately, but although they worked on him, he couldn't be brought back. As a family, we would like to thank everyone who helped him. It shows what great service we have in Dorset. Thank you. And that's from Melvin Martin and family. 
I'm writing with a heavy heart and a dollop of shock about the premature trimming of our grass verges surrounding Sturminster Newton. Right during our cherished no-mow May. It seems the council, bless them, might have misplaced their calendars. Our lovely local wildlife relies on this period and the council's actions seem to sidestep the importance of this initiative. It's like putting a full stop in the middle of a sentence. It just doesn't make sense. We need to ponder the cost of such haste on nature's precious cycle. We're expecting a bit of clarity here, as well as an assurance that our no-mo-may will be left undisturbed in future. I'm sure many of us would be pleased to see our council showing more regard for these matters. That letter was from Sarah G. in Sturminster Newton. Rage against the mo. I wish to voice my anger at what I presume are the actions of our council. It's been so disheartening to witness the early cutting of our grass verges around the Sturminster Newton perimeter. Sad at any time of year on unnecessary road stretches, but utterly unwarranted during no mow May. Worse was to come, however. Every morning I drive through the village of Hamoon. Every day in recent weeks I have gloried in the stunning shoulder-high swathes of cow parsley which have adorned the lane verges. They have neither impeded my vision, nor can I conceive that the lush, thick verges of tall, straight-growing plants have caused any other road user any safety issues. And yet these two have been subject to a ground-level mow in the last few days. I am horrified and enraged at this senselessness. The month of May is a critical period in our UK ecology. We choose it for no mowing for a reason. Wildflowers and grasses are in full bloom, providing vital habitats and food sources for insects, spiders, snails, small mammals and birds. By allowing the verges to grow, we ensure the survival of our local flora and fauna, supporting pollinators essential for our ecosystem's health. I implore the Council to reconsider their actions and respect our commitment to preserving and enhancing local biodiversity. And that's from Alan Watts by email. From James Smith in Sherborne comes this. I'm writing, he says, in support of Andrew Livingstone's thought-provoking piece on the delicate balance of biodiversity in the UK's struggling ecosystems. That was from the BV of May the 23rd, Law of Unintended Consequences. The topic is a critical one, especially given the dire state of many of our native species and the implications of human actions on their survival. Andrew's focus on the issue of legal protections, such as for raptors, and the unintended consequences of this was interesting. While it's essential to protect threatened species, we must indeed acknowledge the ripple effects such interventions may have on the entire food chain. A stronger focus on habitat construction rather than on specific species protection to enhance biodiversity. It would lead to a more sustainable balance in our ecosystems without disadvantaging other species in the process. The law of unintended consequences rings so true here. As we strive to protect and foster wildlife, we must remain vigilant to the complex dynamics of our ecosystems. On the protesters, and this is from Ellie Holding of Sherbourne. In response to the letter by M. Holderness of Charlton, BV Magazine, May 23, I share his concerns about the widespread dismissal of climate activists' efforts. The urgency and severity of the climate crisis demand far-reaching revolutionary changes, and I appreciate that activists are working to convey this message. It's true that climate activism is often met with antagonism, and its strategies can be seen as inconvenient or disruptive. 
However, the primary goal of such activism is to stir conversation and incite action, which, judging by the attention these movements have received, has been successful. The fact that we're now discussing these issues more openly is evidence of the impact these protests have had. Scientific warnings about the catastrophic implications of climate change have been falling on deaf ears for decades, far, far too long. Consequently, the need for dramatic action to reverse the effects of climate change has become critical. It's not about causing public disorder, but about sounding the alarm to save our planet. I hope that more people will understand the desperate circumstances that have led to these protests, and see them not as a nuisance, but as a necessary wake-up call. The revolution Holderness speaks of should be seen not as an act of rebellion, but as an urgent call to action to ensure a sustainable future for our planet. From Ruby P, who says she's 62 and is writing on her iPad, by email comes this one. In response to Susan N's letter from Blandford, the BV of May 23, I wholeheartedly concur with her perspective. As we advance further into the digital age, it's imperative for businesses, irrespective of their establishment date, to adapt and evolve with the changing times. It's understandable that some long-standing businesses might find the transition to digital platforms challenging. However, the advantages of such a move significantly outweigh the potential discomfort of adapting to new tools and technologies. Susan aptly pointed out the valuable opportunities for audience engagement, for brand awareness and promotion provided by social media platforms. There is ample help available in terms of training and resources for businesses seeking to improve their digital presence. The ability to enhance digital platforms is no longer an optional extra, but a crucial component of business survival in today's highly competitive market. It's been here for a generation now. The time has come for all businesses, irrespective of their size or establishment date, to embrace the digital era fully. By doing so, they not only stay relevant and attractive to new customers, but also ensure their own continued growth and success. On Disposable Barbecues Your article on Disposable Barbecues, May 23, made alarming reading. Despite the horrific consequences, how is it that disposable barbecues remain readily available in the market? From instigating wildfires to contaminating the soil, endangering wildlife and simply causing severe burns, the threat these items pose is significant. While I am encouraged by the actions taken by Dorset Council, Litter Free Dorset and responsible retailers such as the Southern Co-op in raising awareness and removing disposable barbecues from their shelves, I believe more stringent measures are needed. Why can't disposable barbecues be banned? Is it not justifiable to consider an all-out prohibition? We must strive for long-term changes. Convenience should never supersede safety and environmental responsibility. And that's Anna B. by email. In this month's BV magazine, regular contributor and local historian Roger Guttridge writes about the eminent 17th century chemist, scientist and alchemist Robert Boyle and his connection to the North Dorset town of Stalbridge. Robert Boyle was the man who discovered what we now call Boyle's Law and who's considered to be the father of chemistry. Personally, this connection with Stalbridge was news to me and I wondered if it had been a strong one back in the 1600s. Yes, a very strong local connection because he 
lived, well, he was Lord of the Manor for, uh, of Storbridge for the best part of half a century. And before that, he was actually did most of his early experiments in, in Storbridge Manor as a teenager. But, but he, was, uh, he was born in Ireland, wasn't he? He was born in Ireland, yeah. His father came from London originally, but went to Ireland with £27, um, married a, a very rich lady who died, and then another very rich lady, um, and ended up as, I think, the richest man in Ireland. Um, and the Earl of Cork, he became, Richard Richard Boyle became the Earl of Cork. And um, Robert was the 14th of Richard's 15th, 15 children with um, his second wife, Catherine. But she died by the time Robert was five. The, the Storbridge connection begins because Robert's father, Richard, the Earl of Cork, um, foresaw looming troubles in Ireland, this was in 1636 I think it was, uh, then as now, and probably bought Storbridge Manor as a sort of escape in case he needed to uh, flee Ireland. Um, it was pretty run down at the time, so he embarked on a restoration programme and eventually um, handed the whole manor over to Richard, to uh, Robert rather. And of, and of course, as, as uh, Robert's father was a, a wealthy man, having married two uh, rich women, um, yeah. uh, that, that would have meant, of course, well, that meant that he was able to send Robert to um, Eton. Uh, but also, of course, he was able to have him privately educated as well, wasn't he? And, and uh, no great need for Robert to go out and earn a living, was there? Not really, no. Yes, he did go to Eton for a while, and his brother Francis as well. Um, but then, once Storbridge was purchased, he was invited to... Uh, well, not invited, he was told um, to come to Storbridge. Um, and initially, the young Robert lodged with uh, the local clergyman, Parson, Parson Douch, to continue his education and avoid, quote, the temptations of idleness. Like drinking and gambling, things like that, you mean? That's the kind of thing, yes, although he had no interest in that anyway, so I don't think his father needed had any cause to worry. It sounds like um, his father didn't know him particularly well then. In that case, well, no, well, he had 15 children. In, oh, uh, yes, that would have been difficult then, wouldn't and he, it? And he'd hardly seen anything of Robert anyway, so he wouldn't know, would he? <laughs> no, he wouldn't have known, no, I suppose we have to forgive him. But uh, it sounds as if uh, Robert was uh, was quite a studious boy and young man. Well, he was. I mean, he he wrote a lot. He he wasn't. He was. He was taught music, but turned out he had a very bad voice. He wrote a lot of poetry in the three languages as a youngster in English, French, and Latin, but was clearly not impressed with his efforts as he marked his twenty-first birthday by burning the lot. Um, but then his main interest. He he didn't have any interest in whining or dining. Um, as a young man, he preferred to study or walk for hours in the fields around Stalbridge, where he was able to think at random and indulge his imagination. And and was it um, he he went to he travelled over to Europe when he was uh, uh, still a young man. And was it that that you think that really gave the impetus to wanting to study chemistry? Not necessarily. No, I mean he and his brother went on a European tour, during which time their father actually died, his mother had already died, his father died and he 
by the time he came back from the European tour, he found himself as Lord of the Manor of Stalbridge, which was um, the title he inherited from the Earl. But I don't think there's any reason to think. I think he was a natural. He took a natural interest in the sciences and, and nature, and um, he seems to have been a born chemist, really. And, and Roger, do the local records, the Stalbridge records, um, say anything, give any indication as to whether he was a good Lord of the Manor? Uh, not that I'm aware of, but um, he didn't spend a huge amount of time in Stalbridge in his, in his adult life because a lot of the time he spent staying with his favourite sister, Catherine Lady Rainley in London, um, and also then moved to Oxford. And of course he was one of the great brains of his day, known as the father of chemistry to us, um, after just giving us Boyle's Law, which um, it tells us apparently that the volume of gas varies inversely to its pressure. I'm not sure what that means, but anyway. Um, but he also made a lot of friends with some of the leading figures of the day, such as Sir Isaac Newton, Sir Christopher Wren, who came from East Noyle, by the way, the um, diarists John Evelyn and Samuel Pepys, uh, and antiquity John Aubrey and, and many others. Uh, and he, so I think he couldn't socialise with them and, and study with them in Stalbridge, so he preferred to spend most of his time as in um, London or Oxford, so he was something of an ab absent landlord most of the time. Now, Roger, in in the article that you wrote about uh, Boyle and the Stalbridge connection for the BV magazine, you, you quote him in your article as writing to his sister to say that, I see I am not designed to the finding of the Philosopher's Stone. Um, was that really what he was trying to find out when he began his chemistry experiments? Or what did he see himself initially primarily as an alchemist? I, I think most of them did in those days. Alchemy was a very different business to what it is now. Um, but I think he also had a way of expressing himself which suggests that we shouldn't um, take him too literally anyway. And the reason he said that was that he had plans to create this chemistry lab at Stalbridge Manor and the um, wagon bringing his Vulcanian influence, he called it, um, didn't arrive. And when it did finally arrive, his great earthen furnace was broken into pieces. And that's when he complained that all the fine experiments and castles in the air that I had built upon its safe arrival have felt the fate of their foundation, and adding that um, he, he was perhaps not destined to fi find the Philosopher's Stone. But his, his pessimism was rather premature because... In, 18, sorry, in 1648, he wrote again to his sister, saying, Vulcan has so transformed and bewitched me to make me fancy my laboratory as a kind of Elysium. Which, which is a, a wonderful thing to say, really, isn't it? A kind of Elysium there. So yeah. a, a paradise. So yeah. he, he was, um, obviously, one imagines he was very, spent many happy hours uh, in, in his... Uh, experimenting in his laboratory in the manor. Absolutely, yes, he, he did certainly that and um, and then many other happy hours in his laboratories in London and Oxford as well. Um, 
and those friends that I quoted earlier, he used to call them the Invisible College. And those at Oxford he described as a knot of ingenious and free thinkers. So he, he was very happy to move in those circles and obviously was well qualified to do so. And, and that was the start of the Royal Society, was it? Yeah, he was one of the founders of the Royal Society in 1660, yeah, along with, I think, um, some of the other people that I mentioned were also um, founders of it at that time, which obviously was the, the great um, society of its time for scientific investigation and discovery. Now, was, would I be rash in thinking that he was something of a royalist? Because um, he didn't would. he have to <laughs> rescue uh, Stalbridge Manor? His father rescued that from, from ruin. And then, and then Robert had to re-rescue it uh, after, the, after Cromwell's lot. Yeah, well, uh, yes, actually, he was definitely a royalist. And, um, and actually, King Charles I and his troops actually spent the night one night in Stalbridge Manor, travelling from um, Sherborne to Blandford in uh, 1644. And I think it was, well, he, he'd been away on his European tour at that point, so probably wasn't at home to welcome them. But Robert was certainly a royalist, or the family were, and um, he seems to have come out of it okay, though, because... You know, some people were obviously ruined by their association with the royal family, well, with Charles I, but he seems to have survived all that, really. Well, perhaps it but helped he, that he was not not around at the time that Charles I came visiting. <laughs> Quite possibly, yeah. But it did need, it did, it did have to be restored again, and eventually um, Solbridge House was, um, which stood behind that long stone wall, by the way, in case anybody's wondering, um, on the road from Storbridge, just outside Storbridge on the Henstead Road. And that was eventually dismantled and demolished in 1822 and the, the materials sold off. That's a, that's a great shame because from the illustration in your article in the, in the magazine, it looks as if it was Elizabethan. Uh, yes, I think it probably was Elizabethan, yeah. Yeah, it's certainly pretty old. But, but a, a, a grand and rather large dwelling. Oh, very much so, yes. As befits, of course, the son of the Earl of Cork, you know, who was, as I say, the richest man in Ireland. I'm sure he could afford it. Yeah. Uh, and do, do you feel, Roger, that there ought to be a blue plaque somewhere along that lengthy wall outside Stalbridge um, for Robert Boyle? I think that's a jolly good idea, yes. <laughs> start a campaign to have myself. one put up. <laughs> well, I, I think that's a very good idea, actually, yeah. And he really ought to... Uh, Robert Boyle did his experiments here or something like that. Roger Guttridge talking about the eminent 17th century chemist Robert Boyle and his connection with the town of Stalbridge. In the June edition of the BV Magazine podcast, we're featuring three interviews with local antiques dealers who've recently appeared on national television. Firstly, I spoke to Craig Warson of the Sherborne Antiques Market and suggested that their relatively new business was a little different than most conventional antique shops. Craig, thank you for talking to the BV Magazine podcast. And firstly, just tell us a little bit about Sherborne Antiques Market. It's a, a little bit different than a lot of the antique shops around Sherborne, isn't it? 
Hello, Terry. I suppose it's slightly different uh, because we have uh, quite a large shop, but it has 38 dealers. And with 38 people, you have 38 different opinions. And the beauty is 38 different ideas of antiques and collectibles and interiors. That's fair enough. I mean, Sherborne isn't short of the odd antiques outlets, is it? Uh, it, I mean, it must have been a little bit of a, a gamble setting up a new one, because it's been there, what, a couple of years now, hasn't it? What was the thought process that went into coming to Sherborne then? Well, it's that big C word, isn't it, that we all went through about two and a half, three years ago. And I was a dealer up in Petworth, where I had two outlets. I was with the antique market there but also in a wonderful shop called Tudor Rose. And during COVID, because I had such a long journey to do normally, I managed to stay around Portland, restore furniture, and I thought it's about time I had my own market. So Philip, my partner at the time, was still an auctioneer with Dukes in Dorchester. And initially I was going to open it on my own. However, Philip had decided that his day had come to a close with regards to auctioneering and wanted to join me. And he's a super business partner. He has a speciality for furniture restoration, which, of course, he did before he joined the auction house. So he's a furniture restorer and he's got a very good eye with choosing items for sale. So together we can be good antique dealers, but equally so having A market where we can have 38 independent people seems to work for us. Setting up a shop on your own would be one thing. Then trying to appeal to a lot of external dealers, and some of them are quite recognisable names, aren't they, on the household front, is another thing altogether. That must have made it even more difficult, surely. How did you go about finding people to take space in the shop? Well, first of all, we were allowed during COVID to have a bubble with a couple and we went for lunch with Paul Atterbury and his wife Chrissy, who Philip had been working with for a time and I had already made inquiries with regards to the building and I used Paul as a sounding board and basically I said to him would you be interested Paul in joining a market if a market was going to open hypothetically in Sherborne first of all he's he stood back he thought about it he said Yes, yes, I would. Then he said, why, are you thinking of opening a market? And I said, yes, but I haven't actually told anybody yet. He said, well, yes, I'll join you. So he was my first recruit. So it was a leap of faith, really. And antique dealers normally like to hunt on their own. They normally like to trade on their own. However, this works because the shop is open seven days a week. Presumably you have your own part of the shop as well. It's not just external. What What's your own side of it? What do you deal in? Is it just anything that comes along or have you got a particular specialty? I would like to say that I'm a specialist in furniture. However, I'm not. I know so little compared to the people I work alongside. I would suggest that I'm probably a decorative dealer. There's No shame in that. I look at an item, I think, yes, that can be used in the home or the garden. It's beautiful. Could I live with it? Could I sell it? And more to the point, could I make a slight profit on that item? So I tend to buy furniture, pictures, items that 
are unusual for someone's home. I do seem to sell a lot to interior designers who use us as a source to find their stock. If one watches one of the many antiques programmes that grace our screens, then there's, there seems to be divided opinion about whether you should just buy things that you like or whether you go looking for a profit or, or what you do. What's your uh, mantra on that? Do you only buy things that actually appeal to you or is it more scientific than that? Oh, I don't think there's any science to it at all. Certainly not where I'm coming from. I do buy what I like, but I also buy stuff that I know will sell because everybody needs chest of drawers. Uh, people need somewhere to put their computer. So we've seen recently with the sizes of computers coming down to tablets that people are beginning to buy bureaus now. So I do tend to buy those. Personally, they're not my choice, but I know that they will sell. With regards to chest of drawers... They're functional and beautiful. I suppose if I do have a mantra, what I would say to you is when I'm looking for something, they should be practical and pretty. So they should be usable and they should look lovely. Yes, it's one thing having something very historically interesting. It's another finding a use for it in today's society, isn't it? So I, I think that's very wise advice. Now, you had a visit not that long ago from the Great Antiques Road Trip. Is that the correct? Antique Road Trip. Yes, they've been to us before. And the last time they came, it was a celebrity antique road trip. And this time it was the regular presenter, Catherine Suthon, and she was wonderful. She'd been filming in the morning. She came into the shop and she looked exhausted. And she said, come on, boy, she said, help me. What am I going to buy? And already she put us at our ease. Philip was the one doing the filming this time. And he just got hold of her arm, pulled around, showed her a few things, took her upstairs to show her where we restore our furniture. She loved it up there because she herself is an auctioneer. So she had something in common with Philip. She chose a couple of items. And of course, it's it's theatre. It's television. So they're expecting to show the general public that there's a deal to be had. And in the main, there normally is. If something's priced for, say, for example, £110, you know that you can drop by £10 so everybody's happy. But of course, when you're being filmed for television, you do drop a considerable amount. Because, let's face it, if she wasn't going to buy anything, there wouldn't have been a television programme. But she was very, very pleasant. They all were, from the sound people, the camera people... They, they were super. It was a lovely experience to go through. And how long does something like that take? One hears horrible stories of you know, spending sort of three days filming 10 minutes worth of television. Did it take a long time? Well, it, I think it could have gone on a little bit longer. But we had tickets to go to the opera that night. So I said to her, I don't care what happens. We are leaving here at half past six, which they all burst out laughing at. So they turned up at half past one in the afternoon and by half six they were ready to go. So it was good to give them um, a time scale. Otherwise, I think we could have been there till about seven. Well, we'll look out for that one. Do you know when it's going out or not? No, 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 I don't actually. I presume that they'll tell us, but sometimes it's just a case of you're told by other people that it's been on TV. 
And you mentioned the restoration side of the business. Do you take in projects for other people or is that just things that you buy that you want to restore for onward sale? We don't have the time to take things in from other people now. We look at an item that we might buy privately or at auction and it may not look its best. It may have veneer missing. It may have some type of problem with it. But together we can normally rectify that and we can make it look pretty and make it look attractive so somebody wants to possess it. These things that we like to sell have been around for a couple of hundred years, so let's give them another lease of life. Craig, thank you. Final tip then uh, for somebody wanting to go and buy an antique and keep it for a few years in the hope of a a sound investment. What, What would be your tip of the day for that sort of thing at the moment? Oh, heavens, if I knew what was going to be in fashion in 10 years' time and what was going to make me a lot of money, I certainly wouldn't be restoring furniture and doing what I'm doing now. All I would say to you, Terry, is if you see something that you're going to keep, buy something you absolutely fall in love with. Buy something that if you haven't bought it by the time the shop closes and all you do is think about it all night, go back and get it because it'll pay you back dividends. And you'll get much enjoyment from it as well, hopefully. Craig, thank you very much for talking to us today. It's been my pleasure. Do come and see us at Sherbourne Antiques Market in Cheap Street in Sherbourne. Politics. A balance of environmental concerns with food security and local people must be at the heart of local politics, says MP Chris Loder. I have for some time believed that we have to balance our environmental concerns with our food security needs. As the Parliamentary Private Secretary to Ministers in DEFRA, I was therefore pleased to be at an early morning meeting with the Prime Minister in May to discuss food security issues as part of the Farm to Fork Summit. I was also very pleased to see that Dorset Cereals, one of our major local businesses previously based in Dorchester and now operating from Poole, was a stallholder at the event. To address the criticisms I have heard levelled at the summit as being non-inclusive, it is important to remember that there are only so many people you can fit into 10 Downing Street. I was actually impressed by the good number of important representatives who did attend. On another note, while it was good to have the NFU in attendance, it's worth noting that they only represent around 50% of those working in the farming industry. It was great to see that other groups, such as the Tenant Farmers Association, were also present. Fundamentally, this was a summit about the UK food supply chain and its self-sufficiency, incredibly important topics. There were also lots of focused discussion groups, each one having key government advisers in attendance to get opinion and feedback. As the Dorset MP present, and especially being from a tenant farming background, rest assured that Dorset's voice was heard loud and clear. Later this month, on the 29th of June, polling stations will open from 7am to 10pm for residents of the Sherbourne West Ward, as more than 2,200 households face a by-election this month for a new Dorset councillor. It follows the resignation last month of Liberal Democrat councillor Matthew Hall, who moved to Devon almost a year ago. This by-election provides the opportunity to restore a Sherbourne voice to Dorset Council. Participating in local government can be a rewarding and insightful opportunity. I was the local councillor for the Cam Vale Ward following a by-election in 2013, and the experiences I gained from local government were formative in developing my interest in national politics.
At the time of writing this article, only the Conservatives have formally adopted their candidate to contest the by-election, Rebecca Burns, who is a lifelong Sherborne resident and award-winning town business owner. She was selected on the 13th of May by the West Dorset Conservative Association. Rebecca has pledged to improve communication between electors and their local councillor, and she's already been out on the doorsteps delivering letters, talking to residents and listening to their concerns. As someone who was born in Sherborne and who knows the town and its people well, I'm relieved that the community has Rebecca as a candidate. It genuinely makes a difference when a person born and raised in the area is the candidate representing the interests of local people. One of Rebecca's main priorities is to reopen the inquiries desk at Sherborne Police Station, which has the backing of Dorset's Police and Crime Commissioner David Sidwick. Being able to talk to a police representative in person can make reporting crime less intimidating, a welcome move considering there were 74 incidents, including business-related crime and antisocial behaviour, reported in Sherborne in March alone. I am also pleased to hear that Rebecca is committed to respecting the town's values and heritage while wanting to introduce a more modern, refreshed approach to governance and representation. Local politics should be about local people, and in Sherborne West, Rebecca certainly has my full support. Credibility, Profit, Service and Discontent From Mike Chapman of the North Dorset Lib Dems We were sitting, he says, having a cup of Lib Dem coffee in Shaftesbury at the weekend, and the question was asked, who can you trust these days? We took soundings around the room and got some thought-provoking responses. A number had been to the Any Questions panel, recently broadcast live from Mandel. It was felt strongly that the more credible panel members were the two non-politicians, not least because there seemed to be less side, less spin in their answers. Someone commented that Prime Minister's questions has taken the art of swerve and sidestep to new levels of pointlessness. We began to consider leaders of organisations who, in Sir Humphrey's immortal words, appear to have had their trousers nailed to the mast such that they cannot climb down, however unreasonable their adopted position. The DUP, the Public and Commercial Services Union, the various rail trade unions and companies, we found ourselves discussing other organisations also progressively losing their reputations and public trust. The water companies, energy companies, even the supermarkets under the twin clouds of profiteering and supply chain brutality. In one of his answers on any questions, the CEO of Oxfam said that his organisation monitors the performance of the biggest 100 food and energy companies, whose profits have increased by 80 billion in the last period. It is by action, not words, not through spin, but by substance, that we should make our judgments on these organisations. Our group made special mention of the lack of credibility of the more pro-Brexit politicians and their supporters. We turned to discussing those we can trust. We felt we can and do trust each other. There's nothing as powerful as a good team. We talked about the people in our various communities who can and do make a difference, who act for all their locality, who are selfless rather than self-seeking. There were so many examples. So, the question begs, how can society harness the ethos and capabilities of such people? How can we rid ourselves of professional politicians who look to govern for the minority, the 30% who always vote for them? 
We need a whole lot more truth and much, much less ideology and its consequences. The more we can bring the people in our communities who we do trust into government, local and national, the more inclusive will be the decision-making. The problem, of course, lies in persuading ourselves and our friends and acquaintances to have the nerve and the resilience to step up and stand for election. There are Dorset Council elections next year. Same old, same old, or something different? Come on, everyone. Think about standing. Revitalise housing through compulsory purchase. Pat Osborne at North Dorset Labour Party writes as follows. Labour's plans to back the builders, not the blockers, took further shape this week with the announcement that the next Labour government would allow local authorities, including Dorset Council, to buy land at a lower price through compulsory purchase orders were justified and in the public interest. The idea is a simple one. Because land without planning permission is worth more than land with planning permission, land with the hope factor, councils would be able to buy up land at a lower rate. As one of the most expensive places in Britain to rent or buy a home, local Dorset people struggle to afford to live in the area, even as housing costs continue to rise. The new policy would not only open the door to councils providing good quality local authority homes for rent at affordable prices, but also have a deflationary impact on a bloated housing market that increasingly prevents first-time buyers from buying their first home. The new policy is good news, not only for the 30% of us who simply want reasonable rents in good quality homes with secure tenancies, or for those who aspire to own their homes and enjoy decreasing housing costs as their mortgage is paid back over the years, but for all of us who benefit from the stable, sustainable and vibrant communities that affordable housing helps to deliver. However, it will need a creative and aspirational Labour Council as well as a creative and aspirational Labour government to really deliver the benefits to people here in Dorset. So, as the preparation starts for both the local elections in Dorset next year and a general election nationally, it's time to start reflecting on how well served we currently are by the stale Tory-led council that has delivered increased council tax whilst winding down our local services and failing to deliver on housing, and an exhausted shambles of a Tory government that's fresh out of ideas despite appointing 15 housing ministers in 13 years. Ken Huggins of the North Dorset Green Party says it's time to wake up and see the flood. What a lively few weeks of mixed emotions we've had. Jubilation and joy, tempered with disappointment and dismay. The coronation brought joy to some and disappointment to those who believe in the democratic right to peaceful protest. The police waded in to stamp out any hint of dissent, using the new powers given to them by the Tories' Police, Crime, Sentencing and Courts Act that became law last year. Their Public Order Act was given royal assent just days before the coronation. Such was their enthusiasm that the police even detained several Westminster Council volunteers who were simply handing out rape alarms. The government claims that the legislation is necessary to stop protesters from disrupting the lives of ordinary hard-working people. But it's more like an authoritarian means of silencing opposition to government policies. Nothing is going to disrupt all of our lives more than the increasing depletion and pollution of our environment and the changing climate, which is steadily growing ever more extreme. We risk a time coming when all of us, environmental activists and protesters included, will regret not having done more to force the government to take the urgent actions needed to protect our collective future.
Disappointed as he was by the local council election results, Rishi Sunak nevertheless vowed to plough on with what he claims are the people's priorities. The election results suggest he would do well to reconsider those priorities. The Green Party's surge in popularity doubtless reflects the growing environmental concerns of most people. The Office for National Statistics reports that climate change is now the second biggest concern for 75% of UK adults, demonstrating how out of touch the government is. A record number of Green councillors were elected last month, up from 281 to 481. The total included 33 new councillors here in the South West. While we look forward to the next general election, the lack of proportional representation will inevitably mean that the result will continue to reflect the wishes of vested financial interests, media barons and wealthy donors, rather than those of the general populace. We deserve better, do we not? And that's all from this first episode of the June 2023 BV podcast. Join us again next week, if you can, for the next episode. Until then, it's goodbye from me, Jenny Devitt. And it's goodbye from me, Terry Bennett.